Heavenly Father, I am thankful for a church that is at your feet every Sunday looking at your word. And and more importantly, Father, a church that really has a mind and a heart to serve you and to make our lives about you. Um, I know that we all are busy, Father. You know that. We all have lives to lead. You've asked us to be industrious and to be to be men and women who care for our own needs rather than being burdens on other people. But but how easy is it, Father, for us to go from that mindset to one in which we forget about you altogether and we just serve ourselves? And I know, Father, we all do that in some ways from time to time. It's just natural. But it's not good. And your word, Father, is such a powerful reminder to us of that fact. And I do praise you, Father, for keeping us small. Small enough that when one or more of us have uh, wandered a little bit, there's probably somebody who knows us and cares for us who can remind us and encourage us to come back. And uh, I thank you, Father, that we have a, a community that, that loves you enough to make those efforts and to uh, know you well enough that we want others to share with what we have. But, Father, a small church also has its burdens and has its challenges. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us the strength to meet some of them and the desires to meet all of them. Help us, Father, with the growth that might come. Help us, Father, with the opportunities we can't meet right away. Give all of us patience, Father. Give us desire and, and hope for something better as we go forward in walking with you, but, but not, so, not so much focused on things we don't have, Father, that we overlook what we do have. So I, I want to balance on all those things, Lord. You've given us so much for these years. We pray for more to come. And as we open a new book this morning, a book that is so rich with doctrine, Help us to appreciate, Father, why we have to know these things in our own walk. Help us to be ready to use them as we learn them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting this morning in the book of Ephesians. You know, studying a New Testament letter like this one uh, can sometimes feel a little bit like taking a college course. And I don't mean that in a good way. Uh, Epistles are stuffed deep with theology, with explanations of Christ and of salvation. And, and they're like onions. Somebody once said you have to unpeel them. They just have all these layers of knowledge that you're trying to get through. And you'll come through these letters encountering phrases and words like propitiation or predestination, which is going to come up in this letter, or even just the word grace. You know, these are words that need explanation. And you may find some references from time to time to some obscure Old Testament passage or some new spiritual mystery. And, and so if you've ever found yourself going through an epistle, particularly one written by Paul, where you get stuck on a single verse and you just keep reading it over and over, trying to make sense of it, well, you're not alone. I think that's the common experience of believers. And then there's other times when it almost feels like you're reading someone else's mail, where you're reading about things that other people experienced at other times, and it doesn't quite feel like stuff you know from your own experience. Believers living under unfamiliar circumstances, dealing with issues we don't have in our world today. I mean, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, stuff like that. You know, you read these things, and it's not that you don't understand what it's about, but you're trying to make sense of it in your own life. You're trying to figure out how something written to someone else long ago is really very impactful for us today. Even if they cover issues that are common, like marriage or children or the like, the way they're addressing those topics may sound unfamiliar, may be hard to relate to. But one thing is true, regardless of whether it's been tough to read or whether it's been obscure, there's always one pattern that I've found to be consistent across the New Testament. Regardless of the subject matter, regardless of the style of the author of the epistle, you find a pattern in which there's doctrine 
followed by exhortation. The writer would tell you something about the person of Christ or the work of Christ or the future of the church, something that's doctrine, but they don't leave you there. They move from that to urging you to act in accordance with what you just learned. So it's background or knowledge in some sense followed by here's what you do with it. And that's a pattern that every epistle follows to some degree. Now some have more of one than the other, but you're never going to find an epistle that is lacking doctrine or lacking exhortation. And that makes perfect sense when you think about it, because don't you first have to understand what God wants, what His ways are, what His expectations are, before you can seek to run out and please Him? Doesn't that make perfect sense? And if you appreciate what God has for you in the future, well, then you're going to be that much more likely to serve Him with an understanding of that future rather than getting short-sighted and just living for yourself and getting buried in the everyday minutia of life here. I mean, these things make sense to us, right? And you're going to find that pattern in Paul's letters and certainly in the one we're studying here in the book of Ephesians. Paul, probably more than any other New Testament author, he will teach you doctrine as a springboard from which he can then exhort you on how to live, how to be more like Christ. He'll give you the what, and then he'll give you the so what. Near the end of his life, Paul declared at one point in the book of Acts that he was, quote, innocent before men for having declared the whole counsel of God's word. That was his testimony. I almost think that might have been what he wanted on his, on his gravestone. I never failed to teach the whole counsel of God's word. What he means by that is this. He understood that believers need both doctrine and exhortation in some form if they're going to achieve the full measure of our walk of spiritual maturity. If I just fill your head with knowledge but never call you to act on it, that's not the whole counsel of God's word. Or if I get busy asking you to do things, but I never explain doctrinally how that applies to your walk as a Christian or your life in serving Christ, well then again, it's all thrust and no vector, as we used to say in the Air Force. I once heard someone foolishly suggest that the church needed less teaching on doctrine and more calls to action from the pulpit. And that's a clear denial of what you find in the New Testament letters. It's like the captain of a cruise ship demanding more propeller but less rudder. That would just mean you're going to go nowhere faster. It means you've got a lot of energy misdirected. And I think you see that a lot in the church. I don't want to be critical in, the, in this conversation. It's not my point. But as an aside, I think it's true that in many places today, the calls to action from the pulpit are never ending. But there's rarely a time when we sit back and we look at the text of Scripture and, and come to some conclusion about why those actions are called for. But you can see in the epistles themselves that there is evidence for the Lord expecting us to both understand doctrine and then to live by them. Jesus himself said in Luke 8.21, he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus wants his followers, he said, to be those who hear, and in the context he means to understand the word of God. And then he adds, to put into action what you've learned. Because it is possible, and let's be honest, it is possible for someone to understand God's Word and not put it into action. That's actually the classic critique of Bible churches, this one notwithstanding. It's just the classic critique is, you hear a lot of stuff, you fill your head with a lot of stuff, and yet you don't do a lot of stuff. That's what people often associate with, with uh, Bible churches. And sadly, that's true in a lot of places. But friends, by the same token, it is also impossible to act on something that you've never understood. If you don't know what to do, then you, by definition, can't do it. Therefore, the church has to endeavor both to know the mind of God out of Scripture as a prerequisite to then living according. 
to that word. That, friends, in a nutshell, is why we have epistles. That's why we study them. And I'm giving this preface because that as someone launches into an epistle, there's a little bit of expectation, but there's also a little bit of dread, if you've read them anyway. And I say that not without respect for the Word of God. I'm saying that because in our experience... Doctrine just starts to overflow us, and at some point, 40 minutes has gone by, and I don't remember what he just said, but there was a lot of big words in there, and I can't remember any of it. If you've ever had that experience, well, that's partly the fault of the preacher. I hope I don't repeat that. But it's also, I think, a consequence that we may not get the need for it, so our hearts are not engaged in it. When predestination comes up, I'm going to have your attention, I'm pretty sure. But when Paul starts talking about other things, maybe I won't. We need to understand the doctrines that are in this letter. You need to have the same focus and interest on all aspects of the letter because, friends, at the end of it all, this letter is going to ask you to do something with what you're learning. And you've got to know it to do it. So today we're going to begin our study of a letter that was written to a major city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, a city called Ephesus. But we are not starting today in the letter that Paul wrote to that city. We are actually going to begin this morning in a letter that Jesus wrote to that city, and you find it some 30 years later in Revelation chapter 2. So I want you to open up in Revelation 2 verse 1 this morning. And I have to give you some background on the city and on the circumstances. And to give you the background, ironically, I have to go forward in time from when the letter was written to the end of the first century. And in chapter 2 of Revelation 1, we hear Jesus speaking to the same city, Ephesus, in this way. He said, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to him, or I will grant, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So obviously we're not embarking here on a study of the book of Revelation. I just am looking at this one passage today because Jesus' letter to Ephesus directly relates to Paul's earlier letter that we'll study as we move through the text. The Apostle John, who recorded these words, shows Jesus first commending to the church in Ephesus for standing strong against false teachers. Now, certainly standing up against false teaching is commendable, right? We still consider it such today. And... They're particularly commendable because in their day, other churches were not doing this. They were not as diligent. False teachers, and in particular, if you read the New Testament letters, you'll see Judaizers commonly called out. That was a a group of people that said you had to be Jewish before you could be Christian. And they wanted people to get circumcised and follow the law and so on. These groups of false teachers were making inroads into the church. But in Ephesus, no, according to Jesus, they were remaining, by and large, devoted to the proclamation and the preservation of the truth of doctrine. They wanted the truth and they were all about keeping the truth. And that resistance, I think, comes because of their close association with a lot of the early church leaders. For example, Paul lived and taught in Ephesus for several years, about three years, during his second missionary journey. The Apostle John ministered as well in this city for some years. And then you know Paul's protege, Timothy, 
where we get the letters to Timothy, he was the minister of Ephesus after Paul left. And there's even some who think that Peter may have spent some time in Ephesus after he left Jerusalem. So with so many strong teachers guarding the flock in this city, well, it's not entirely surprising, is it, that the church gained this appreciation for Scripture, for doctrine. They took the high ground and they held it. But friends, by the same token, it is really surprising then that this church failed to put that doctrine into action, or so it would appear from what Jesus says. He says to this church, I have one thing against you. He says, you've left your first love. Now, what is the first love of the church? Now, one possible answer, and I would imagine probably the first one you would come to, or that you would suggest, would be Christ himself, right? This idea that, that Christ is our first love and that they have left Christ. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think that's what he means here. I don't think Jesus is saying the church abandoned him personally or that they no longer believe in him or any such thing. And part of it's because of the word. The word in Greek there for first is protos, and it doesn't mean first chronologically, as in the first blush of your relationship. It speaks to prominence, something that is before all else. He's speaking in terms of priority. So in verse 5, you get the clue as to what this priority is that they have stepped away from. Because in verse 5, he gives the church the recipe for returning to that first love. He tells them, do the deeds that you did at first. Once again, here that word protos, when he says the deeds you did at first, the same Greek word is being used there for first again, protos. So he's saying, I have this thing against you. You've left the most important love. And notice earlier in the letter, he's already told them, I know you are doing some good things. They're not lazy. It's not that they're doing nothing now and they used to do a lot. It's that they're doing different things now than they used to do in the first. So apparently, the first or the highest priority love of the church should be some act or deed that is not what the church is now doing. And may I suggest to you that it is serving the Lord rather than serving self. We're talking here about worship, study, prayer, meeting the needs of the congregation, the first things that matter to Christ in his church, witnessing concerning your newfound faith, enduring persecution even as you rejoice in the miracles of the Spirit. In short, living in the Spirit in the light of the salvation that you've received. Because we can't say this church wasn't working. He said they were. We can't say this church didn't know him. He didn't accuse them of that. What he says is, you had something you were doing, And you're no longer doing that. Ephesus had great respect for doctrine. They had great intolerance for bad teaching, for false teaching. And at some point, everything changed in that church. Jesus is writing this letter at the end of the first century. Paul was in that city in the late 50s, early 60s. Somewhere in between those two points, this church set aside the more important works of the church, as Christ expected, and instead started serving themselves in some sense. They went to lower priorities, pursuing worldly things, earthly accomplishments, earthly wealth, earthly recognition, something. Something got them off track. And what's so ironic about this is they knew so much, they protected that, but they did so little with it. Jesus declared it was to their condemnation. And look what he warns them. He says, you know what, if you're not going to be the church in the sense of doing the things the church is supposed to do, well, then I don't need you as a church. You're going to lose your lampstand. In this context, that means he was going to withdraw his hand from their legitimacy, from their right to exist. If you're not going to fulfill the mission to be light to the world, well, then you forfeit your place as a church in this world. Now, we're not talking about individual believers leaving salvation. This is not a question of whether they know the Lord personally. We're talking about the collective here. 
as an organism, as a group meeting together in a city. If you don't have a purpose in your meeting, you don't need a reason to meet then. Jesus just says, we'll just shut this down now. It's a sobering thought, right? And I don't want to run past that too quickly because I've got bigger points to make. But, but, but on that point alone, Jesus is saying, putting faith and knowledge of doctrine into action is important to him. It's not just important to us in the sense that we might be rewarded or blessed for it. It's important to him. In fact, it's the mission. So if we fail in the mission, there's no longer reason for the church to exist. James famously says in his letter, of course, faith without works is dead. Later he says is useless. And what he means is because it's by itself. It's there. I mean, faith saves you. There you go. Good for you. Now what? The Lord never intended for faith to exist by itself. Faith was always intended to lead to action. So we should ask then, what distracted the church at Ephesus? What is it about this place that respected doctrine and did deeds at first, but then they just got off onto other things? What caused the distraction? Normally you would say false teaching led them astray, right? But in this case we have to rule that one out. Because he's already said they had this strong regard for doctrine. What is it? I'm here to propose to you this morning that it was Ephesus itself. The city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a very wealthy, very powerful center in that province. It's the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It was an incredibly corrupting place. It was most known for this temple that it featured. It used to be a very powerful port city, but the port had already started to silt up by the time Paul wrote his letter. And by the end of the first century, there was no port at all. And so it had to transition its economy out of a trade-based economy to one that was really more tourism-driven, actually. The temple that was built there to this god Artemis or Diana was so impressive. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the world that history records as being lost now. But that building was so impressive. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And it brought all kinds of people from all over the Roman Empire to come and see it and to worship there. In the process of the pagan worship, they had prostitution. So it was an approved form of worship to go in there and have prostitutes. So there was huge buildings full of prostitutes that accommodated those worshipers. They brought in a lot of money. I mean, when worshipers come, they bring donations, right? So the money that was stored there was huge. There was so much money in this temple, it became a bank, effectively. It loaned money to kings and other nations. That's how powerful it was. The stadium, they had a Roman stadium that was the largest in the world, bigger than the one in Rome. It had over 50,000 people in a Roman stadium in this day. So the city was just, it was a happening place. You had commerce, food, drink. It had trade, banking, temple visitors. You know, this was a place, let me put it this way. If you were susceptible to distraction, this place had any possible way to create that distraction. And if you were the kind of person who wanted to chase the world's riches, or perhaps you wanted to obtain a name for yourself in front of others, or power in an earthly institution, or something of that sort. Well, friends, you couldn't pick a better city to pursue those things in than Ephesus. Maybe Corinth would have been the only other one you could think of. And it would seem then that the church in Ephesus, somewhere after the mid-century, began doing that very thing. Individually, one at a time, maybe collectively. You know how it works, right? If your friend starts doing it, you might find interest in it. And history records that Jesus did, in fact, follow through on his warning to this church. He removed the lampstand, so to speak. He withdrew his blessing. The church disappeared. And by the second century, the city was in decline. The port, again, having silted up and the church now dying out. And eventually the whole city became a ruin. There's still nothing there. We're talking 2,000 years later, and it's never been settled again. Now that sad outcome is all the more surprising when you remember 
how this church began. Because not only did Paul and the other apostles live and teach in this city for several years, Paul goes out of his way at one point near the end of his own ministry to meet with the church elders in this city and exhort them one more time concerning the very threat that Paul knew was happening to that church, the very thing that Jesus talks about. And he does this on his last trip down to Jerusalem, right before he's been prisoned and taken to Rome. This happens in the book of Acts. So we're going to go now is turn from Revelation 2, turn to Acts chapter 20. And in this moment, you're going to see more evidence to tell you what's happening in this city. This is about the 60-61 AD time frame. Paul, as I said, he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's going down to Jerusalem knowing he's probably going to be put in chains and taken somewhere after that. So he's already got the big picture of what's probably going to happen to him. And as he stops in the ship, he stops at a port that's a little south of Ephesus. And the city elders hear that Paul's going to be there. So they travel down to meet him at the port. And this is what we find back in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says here, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to men who were with me. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So those were Paul's parting words to the elders at Ephesus. Now, for our purpose this morning, I want to focus on just the last part. We just don't have the time or the need to go through it all in detail. But in that last part... Paul ends his comments by asking the leaders to remember Paul's example as he lived among them for those several years earlier. And specifically in 31, he says that he admonished them day and night with tears while he lived there with them. Now, Paul speaks a lot like a man who must have been burdened by what he saw when he was in Ephesus. And so what he wanted dearly for them was something better than what he was watching. Why did he have to have tears when he was with them? Well, you get a sense, I think, of what he was dealing with in verse 32. Paul commends them to the word of God, which he says, that alone is enough to build you up. 
to deliver an inheritance to you, to the sanctified. And it's his mention of inheritance that's key here. Because it turns out that the church's key weakness was their pursuit of riches in all forms as that city tempted them to do so. And as I said, this is a wealthy city. This is a city that not only possessed great wealth, but it inspired its citizens to want for the same. One of the places I travel commonly is is Singapore. And every time I read about the wealth of the past and how it influenced people, my mind always runs to Singapore. It's a country, but it's a city. So if it happens in one side of the city, it's going to get to the other side of the city before too long. And in that kind of a culture where it's insulated and incredibly wealthy, I don't think there's a wealthier place on earth per capita. When you're in that kind of a place, the pressure to equal the Joneses is unbelievable. If one person wants to live in that city and live a different lifestyle, they're always butting up against the culture that says, what's wrong with you? We don't live that way here. And it's just one example. Singapore is not the only place. I'm just using them as an example because when we see wealth on display, we naturally covet it to some degree. If we're dishonest, we'll go after it in some dishonest way. We'll try to take it through some illegitimate means. But even if you're upright and honest, you still get distracted by your working for it to the point where you're trapped, as I said. Paul saw that pattern in that church, I would contend. And so Paul exhorted the church... To remember his example. Now notice the example he cites. He doesn't cite his example of study. He doesn't cite his example of upright living. He doesn't cite his example of prayer. Or any number of other things you might pull out and think that would be the best thing to remind somebody of the last time you see him. What does he bring out? He says in verse 33, I didn't covet anyone's silver or gold. It almost sounds like he's defending himself against an accusation. You know, if you heard that out of the middle of nowhere, you might think, did you do something, Paul? Is there something we don't know about? Right? Why did he bring that up? Well, I think he's bringing it up by way of example to simply illustrate, I never set my sights on obtaining the wealth of this city. I came with you, I live with you, I work with you, but I never made my goal becoming like the rest of Ephesus. He didn't desire their silver and gold, it didn't distract him, he didn't work to obtain it. Instead, what does he say he does? He says, I worked, yeah, but I only worked enough to support my basic needs and the men who were with me, just enough to ensure I wasn't a burden on you. And that's where it ended. Enough's enough. Verse 35, he says, I did this so that I would have time remaining to work on more important spiritual concerns. And I think specifically when he says here he helps the weak in the church, I think he means both financially and spiritually. I suspect he probably worked just enough to take a little extra off the side and use that money charitably to help those who were too sick to work or were widows or in some other way needed support. And then whatever time he had remaining then, he could take that extra time that he wasn't working to get gold and silver, and he uses that to teach and pray and encourage and do the things God needed done. These are the things Paul told the church to remember right before he says, I'm never going to see you again. So I have to think that if you're going to say something to someone knowing it's the last time you're going to see them, then you should put a lot of weight on whatever the last thing is somebody felt the need to say, right? He's talking here about a church getting distracted by seeking things of this life rather than remaining focused on the next. And in verse 32, he told them they have an eternal inheritance. As it turns out, you're going to hear that phrase used almost immediately at the outset of the letter to Ephesus. When we get to that letter, Paul talks about having riches in heaven. It explains where he says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. When you give, and we can sum that up as time or talent or treasure. When you give time, talent, or treasure to the needs of the body... You're investing in your own spiritual future. 
When you're serving Christ sacrificially, you're storing up treasure in heaven, he says. Our giving will be blessed later in heaven, and the result will be far greater reward than anything you could obtain here if you work for it here. On the other hand, if you structure your life to receive, and in the same senses, right, to receive wealth, that is to work for it, or to receive time, that is to absorb yourself in hobbies of everyday life, or to gain attention for yourselves, or to do anything that is a receptive sort of behavior for your own sake, you'll get something good out of what you obtain here. Your efforts to receive, they're not going to have no benefit. They're going to have some. You'll be blessed, right? We can generally say that people with money are blessed. People with lots of time on their hands are blessed. That's a blessing. But it's a lesser one than the one that you would gain if you would give and let God give you back later. So it's better to give than it is to receive. And we've cheapened that phrase, right? We've turned it into simply a a message of charity. It's better to give someone a lot of money than to get a lot of money. And didn't you always think that was the biggest lie? Right? It's always better that I give you money than you give me money. I don't know how it's true, but someone told me it must be. If it were merely talking about that, it would be an oxymoron. It's talking about in the spiritual domain to be a giver of what God has asked you to do, time, talent, and treasure, is to a greater blessing than to be a taker in the long run. Paul said he made sacrifices and he did it to model for them what serving Christ looks like for a church living in the midst of a rich culture. And Paul said, I did it so that you would understand this is what you should do. Another way to say it is Paul maintained his first love so that he could turn around and admonish this church to do the same, to seek for an inheritance found only in heaven, to not covet silver and gold in a culture that did. So you might be asking how this background, this story of what we found in Revelation 2 and in Acts chapter 20, how all that relates now to our study of Ephesus. Well, in two ways, friends. First, it's clear that Paul, and Jesus for that matter, had concerns for this church. Paul, in his final instructions, he's telling them, don't succumb to all these temptations that I can see already is beginning to impinge on your faithfulness. And then just a few decades later, you have Jesus writing to the church saying, guess what, you did in fact do the very thing Paul told you not to do. You've left your first love. Secondly, it's safe to say that Ephesus was a church whose affections were divided. On the one hand, they knew the doctrines of God. They respected the doctrines of God. On the other hand, they desired the wealth and the prominence of their city. And in some way, it caused them to become distracted and to leave the first works and to go to some other set of worthless works. And the point in this is very simple. Doctrine does not save you. All by itself, that is, doctrine cannot protect you. Knowing things is not enough. We might think that knowing would automatically drive the right behavior. Ephesus is proof to us, friends, that that's not true. You can't rest solely on knowledge. This church had known a period of success early in its walk when their faith prompted that first love. But at some point it stopped. At some point it stopped. And not because they lost sight of the doctrine. Jesus was still praising their their holding to sound doctrine even in the late first century. The circumstances that surround the church of Ephesus have a lot in common with the churches that we know today, particularly in the Western world. It's blessed to be living in the wealthiest time in human history by any measure. The average person today makes more money in their economy than the richest people tended to have in centuries past. Most developed nations enjoy a standard of living today that is far beyond what was possible in past days. And of course, there are still places of poverty and disease and war. And we know those things are always hard, no matter when they happen. But in general terms, those things impact far fewer people today, percentage-wise, than they used to. In many places today, the church is surrounded by a culture of materialistic, 
attention-hogging, power-grabbing, experience-seeking pagans. That's just like Ephesus. All I'm saying is, if you wonder how it happened to Ephesus, you ought also to be asking, could it happen to us? To our city, to our community, to this church? Could it happen? Are we in any danger of leaving our first love even as we sit and listen to sound doctrine week after week after week? Is that a possibility? And if not for the whole of us, maybe for some of us. Are we all doctrine and no action? Do we guard the teaching and yet we allow our hearts to be tempted by the world around us? Do we acknowledge that we've been approved by God through our faith in Jesus Christ and yet at the same time we covet the praises of men? As they like to say here in Texas, are we all hat and no cattle? I'd like to suggest that the story of Ephesus that we're going to study starting next week in the text itself is a little bit like the ghost of Christmas future. The ghost of Christmas future from the Dickens Christmas Carol. You remember, that's the ghost that shows up to show what the future could be like. Well, in some ways, I think the way the story ended for Ephesus, that's the story of how any church could go, might go, but it doesn't have to be the way it goes. You could live in a similar materialistic pagan culture just like that church did, but you don't have to succumb to the temptations of that culture. Right? I mean, these are options. These are not inevitabilities. And I would say more than any other reason why it doesn't have to be our future, because we have Paul's letter to Ephesus. Paul's letter is one of the greatest ironies of the New Testament because in this letter, Paul wrote precisely to encourage the church not to fall to the very temptation that they eventually fell to. He lived among them. He knew the culture. He knew what they were dealing with. So naturally, he worried about all those things. So he takes time to write this letter that directly addresses what they were dealing with. And here's what he did. And this is what we'll look at is obviously starting next week. In his writing of it, he divided it 50% doctrine and 50% exhortation. The first three chapters are doctrine. The last three chapters are what you do with what you just learned. And as you go through that letter, you're going to see a church that was so worried about riches, they were overlooking the ones they had in heaven. A church that was so concerned about status and and where they positioned themselves in this culture that they never realized what their position with Christ meant. And as a result, they were working for things they already had, more important things. And then that transitioned into who they were as husbands, how they lived as wives, how they thought about being as children. The whole culture of the church lost sight of what these things meant spiritually, what the doctrines meant to them spiritually. History will record this church did not get the message that Paul sent them. They may have guarded the letter, ironically. They may have enshrined it. They probably had it framed somewhere. They probably bowed down to it. I don't know what they did with it, but they certainly didn't put it into action. Faith, in their case, stood by itself being useless, being dead. And ultimately, that became the fate of the church. That doesn't have to be our future. I don't think it's our future. I don't even think it's necessarily our problem right now. But I'm not going to be so naive as to think that because we're currently doing the first love that Christ has asked, that it will always be that way. Self-evidently, sometimes it isn't. It wasn't for them. So next week, we're going to dive into Paul's letter. We're going to seek to hear it, and then we're going to seek to do it together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Lord, for exhortation and for Paul's letter to the book, uh, to the uh, city of Ephesus, and for the way it reminds us that there are challenges in following you that don't go away simply because we get smarter in what you give us. But we want to be both students of the word, Father, and doers. We want to learn from what happened in times past. We want to put it to work in what we face today. And Father, without overlooking the good of today, I also want to acknowledge and thank you for the many you've assembled here who have and continue to do many good things. 
It is proof, Father, that the grace you have poured out here is never-ending. For we do study a lot, and we do talk about the Bible a lot, as we should. But we also have many people, Father, who are working in service to you out of a love for who you are and what you've done, and who take what they've learned and put it to action in their homes and in their families and in their school and in their workplace and here in this building at times. We are grateful for those people. We all want to aspire, Father, to do as Paul commanded, that we would set aside coveting of things of this world, that we would put our focus and attention on serving you. Knowing, Father, that you are pleased when we do that and knowing that you have a reward waiting for those who please you. We, we do want to remember that, Father, and we want to use that as motivation to maintain the faith that we've been given. Thank you, Father, for this study. Bring us back to it in weeks to come with an earnest desire to understand it and live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.